Jesus withdrew, and then this being that he was aware that they were trying to kill him, aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him, and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their evil thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you once more at this time. We come before you in the name of your Son. We ask that you would continue to speak to us through your word. That you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. That we would be like the psalmist that we read from earlier. That we would be a people who learn to love your word and to cherish your word and to live our lives. That your word would be a light and a lamp unto our feet and our path. That we would be shaped by your word and guided by your word. That we would be guarded by your word from false ideas or ideologies that are encroaching on us through many different avenues at this time. That we would be a people that are centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We thank you that you have made your word clear to us that your son not only died on the cross for our sins, but he first lived for us and he kept the law in our place so that he could be the perfect substitute when he died on that cross, sinless and undefiled in place of guilty sinners like us. And that he rose again on the third day, victorious in his mission and ascended back to your right hand from where he will come at an unknown time. As we continue to look into your word and think about this and other passages, would you guard our attention? Would you guard our minds and our affections? Would you help us? Would you, by the power of the Spirit, enlighten us? Help us to understand what we are reading, what we are hearing and to understand how it is to apply to each and every life far beyond what one simple person can do. Help us to be taught by the Spirit Himself through Your Word at this time. And help us to be repentant and believing when this truth is revealed to us, not resistant. We thank You that Your grace is sufficient and that You have not only opened blind eyes throughout the years, but that you have done this for so many of us. And so we ask once again that you would open our, our eyes and our, our hearts to you this morning even more. Would you guard my words? If there's anything that I say that misrepresents or is inaccurate to what you are seeking to say through your word, I ask that you would forgive me and make it be forgotten quickly from anyone that hears so guide my words guide me and use me as a tool at this time may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be an offering of thanksgiving and be acceptable in your sight we pray this in Jesus name Amen Amen well, I'd like to begin by pointing out that in verses 16 through 21, or verses 18 through 21, you'll notice in your Bibles that there's a particular quote from the prophet Isaiah. And verse 18 begins with these words, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. Or some translations say, Here is my servant whom I have chosen. And so that is really the title of the sermon this morning, God's Chosen Servant, Our Suffering Servant King. And I have two main points that I want us to look at through these verses. And the first one is this. The Suffering Servant King was doing two things at all times. First of all, fulfilling what was spoken. As you see there in verse 17. This was to fulfill. And secondly, he's gathering and guarding his lost sheep. And perhaps you have read chapter 10 or you were here when we went through chapter 10 and you remember that Jesus sent out 12 of his disciples and called them his apostles. And he, he told them that first and foremost, the mission of God is going to focus not on the Gentiles just yet, but at this time in history, 
The ministry of Christ is being done primarily for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. For thousands of years, God had been faithfully caring for and walking with his covenant people. A people that were called by his grace and made into this family of God, this kingdom of God. And right now, the the long foretold Messiah is standing in their midst. This is why Matthew puts it like this for us in, in verse 18. He says that, or in verse 17 rather, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. What is the this when he says this was to fulfill? Well, let's look at verse 15 and 16 again. It says, Jesus aware of the fact that people were trying to kill him, trying to accuse him of sin, of breaking the law. And as we thought of last week, um, as they were eating a little bit of grain to nourish their stomachs, the Pharisees wrongly accused Christ and his followers of breaking the Sabbath because they had created these almost unimaginable, un- unmeetable standards through their traditions. And they had added these traditions to the law of God to the point where poor people or people who were traveling without food would feel guilty just to pick some grain and eat it on the Sabbath. And Christ corrects them and says, that's not what the law says. You can't find that anywhere. And again, through that first portion of chapter 12, they're getting pretty upset because they're being corrected left, right, and center. And the people are seeing that their traditions are not the law and they're trying to kill him. And as verse 15 says, Jesus is fully aware of this. And so he withdraws from there. You've got to ask the question when you see ideas like this in the Word of God. Why did he withdraw? Was he afraid to die? You have to say no to that, right? Because clearly, Jesus came to this earth with the primary heart of his mission being to die on an old rugged piece of wood on a hill called Calvary. So he wasn't trying to avoid death. But as verse 16 goes into further detail, the people he was healing, all those who came to him after he withdrew from that place that the Pharisees were, he healed them and and then he says to them, don't make it known just yet. The reason why Jesus was doing this primarily was because his time to be crucified had not yet come, but also because part of the Pharisees' teaching had led the the Jewish people to believe that when the Messiah came, he would set up the kingdom right there and then, overthrow the Romans or whoever was in power. And so they got this idea that the, the, the salvation of God included a life that would transform their current societal and social existence in the here and now. And very many of us today think this too. And if we're not careful, we will start to buy into ideas and movements that claim that part of salvation should be that we get the kind of justice and righteous overturning 
that will one day come, but not yet. And so Jesus doesn't want them to see him as a revolutionary or a social justice zealot. You've heard that term recently, I'm sure. Jesus is making it clear that the time has not yet come for the kind of justice that God will bring, that will make all wrongs right. And the beginning of that justice, and I would say that the foundation of it, is solved by the justice that we see on the cross. We'll get to that in a moment. But the point that Matthew is trying to make by stating all of this and and describing it, or, or basically interpreting it by the beginning of verse 17, that this was to fulfill, is saying that the purpose of Jesus knowing what the Pharisees are trying to do, healing people to show his divine power, and then moving away and saying, don't say much about this, don't cause a a riot, Don't, don't get worked up about what I'm doing, keep it kind of quiet for now. The purpose was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. So I want us to look at these verses 18 through 21 again. Look at this quote, which comes from Isaiah chapter 40 and the first four verses, and also from Isaiah um, 60. And you can see very often Matthew will do this. He will, he will take, in fact, over 60 different times throughout the Gospel of Matthew, 60-something times, he takes Old Testament texts and says this phrase, this was to fulfill. He's trying to teach predominantly a Jewish audience that this person who we killed, who you killed, is the Messiah. He's trying to get them to see clearly this was the Messiah that God had sent. This was the chosen servant of Isaiah's prophecies. And so he says that this was to fulfill. And in fact, we've, we've seen this um, at least about 10 times at this point, that he uses this phrase and he employs these kinds of texts. And in fact, the very structure of Matthew, if you've never read through the whole gospel, I encourage you to do it. But the, the whole structure, I've, I've mentioned part of this before, it, it's built like this. There's five major discourses, meaning five major teachings of Christ. And some of them are chapters long, where Jesus makes a number of very important points. And what he's doing through those points is properly interpreting the law of God aside from the traditions of men so that the people could have clarity on what this coming kingdom was about, what the gospel was really about. But connected to those five major discourses, which we've gone through two already, in chapters 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount, and in chapters 10 when he commissions the twelve, And along with those five major discourses, there are these, what you could call, narrative sections. So that's what we're in now. And in the narrative sections, which don't always flow in order, Matthew takes along with those teachings and and then basically shows us why Jesus, along with his teachings, did certain things in his life the way he did. So that this is not necessarily a biography, as I said before, but this is more of a historical account of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the, the major point of these Gospels. But let's look through verses 18 through 21 again as we consider this first point. 
to fulfill what was spoken. It reads like this. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. If you remember, these words were spoken earlier in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 3, we have the, the baptism of Jesus, where he basically begins his public earthly ministry, in a sense. And it's as if the, the, the father, when he speaks from heaven, is commissioning his son. And he says almost these exact words. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. We need to hold on to that statement. Because throughout the rest of the New Testament, Paul especially makes it clear that to be beloved by God, to be blessed, that's a phrase we throw around a lot, I'm blessed. Well, those words have meaning. To be blessed truly is to be in Christ. There is a sense in which you are not truly blessed by God unless... You are in Christ Jesus through faith and repentance. That's how he begins his his letter to the church in Ephesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in Him, in the heavenly places. And so, this is what the prophet Isaiah is saying. This coming servant, God delights in Him. We need to have that. We need to have Christ because in and of ourselves, God does not say these words of us. If we are not connected to the covenant promises of God and especially His coming Messiah, we will not have these words. We will actually have basically the antithesis, the opposite of these truths because we are sinners by nature. We are only deserving of God's justice. But notice what he says about this beloved one again. He will proclaim justice to the nations. And in verse 19 he says, He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. And we started talking about this concept um, unintentionally last week, last week Sunday night in our Bible study. But as Christians, we are to follow the pattern of Christ. And one of the patterns of Christ is this. He was not a quarrelsome person. He was not an argumentative person. He didn't go into a discussion and say, I'm looking forward to get into an argument. And neither should we. Now, he dealt with some very hard discussions. And it might appear to us that maybe you could define some of those discussions as arguments. In other words, Christ did not avoid conflict for the sake of so-called peace. But he was not an argumentative person. In fact, at the end of chapter 11, when he says, Come to me if you're heavy and and, and burdened and you want to find rest for your souls. He says, I'm gentle and humble in heart. And so this this is the character of Christ that we begin to see through these words here. We see, first of all, the trustworthiness of God by Matthew piling on these Promises that are being fulfilled in Christ. So the Jewish people would have been latching onto that. And then we start to see the character of Christ, the attitudes of Christ. He wasn't a quarrelsome or an argumentative person. When he says in verse 19 that no one heard his voice in the street, 
They're saying he wasn't bombastic. He wasn't, you know, out in the street when he was doing his teaching and screaming and hollering and ranting and carrying on. Of course, he would have had to raise his voice because he didn't have a microphone, right? But he wasn't shouting and screaming and carrying on like a, a madman. And so when we do things in the name of Christ, we should do the same. We should not necessarily think that it's the Spirit moving when people are screaming and ranting and carrying on and being bombastic. Or, as I said earlier, being revolutionaries. That's not the way of Christ. What does he say again in verse 20? A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench or snuff out until he brings justice to victory. This reed and this wick, basically these were objects that would be used on a daily basis. And the point that he's trying to make there when he applies this to Christ, he's saying that there were people who'd come to what would feel like the end of their youth. They were burdened, they were burnt out, exhausted in different ways spiritually. But Christ was not like the Pharisees or other religious people. He did not basically say, well, thanks for your little service, you're burnt out, and make you feel like you're being thrown to the side. He was patient and faithful to to show compassion. That's why he continues to heal people, regardless of if it's on the Sabbath or not. And so this again, this is our pattern. We need to be patient with people. We need to see that sometimes people might feel like these verses describe and show the love of Christ. And then the the end of verse 20 says, until he brings justice to victory. I started to mention this already. But the way that Christ brings about true justice is through his victorious life of sinless, righteous achievement by perfectly keeping the law in place of people like us who cannot do so. Even those of us who have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. You need to hear this again. You cannot keep God's law fully. And that's not an excuse to not try to. Because if you read through the Psalms, one of the major themes that we have been reading through Psalm 119 is this. True believers love God's law. We see the goodness in it. And we see the danger of trying to change it. That includes all of God's word. We'll get to that in a moment too. But Christ is our pattern. And then finally we see this in verse 21. This was a promise that that was first given to Abraham when he became the father of the entire Jewish nation. And in his name, the Gentiles or the nations will hope or, or put their trust. So we see this, this theme of hope and the themes of, of justice. These themes being fulfilled in Christ. When God called Abraham to himself, the very beginning of the promises of God for that nation started with a promise that God would bless him and multiply him and that he would make his name great among the nations. 
So this attitude that the, the, the Pharisees and many of the Jews, because of them in part, had, and again, an attitude that some of us can develop if we're not being sensitive and, and discerning, this attitude that they were God's favorite people and the secret pride that would sneak in and make them feel a little bit, you know, pat themselves on the back, pat yourself, pat myself on the back. If we're not careful, we have the same issue. That because others who do not yet trust in Christ were better. No, that, that concept should never enter the heart of God's people. This is, this is an idea that runs through the Bible. Missions has always been at the heart of God. God is a missionary God. And while he may choose to let his favor rest upon a few people versus many, those few people should never think it was because anything that they did. Even if generations of our family have been faithful, you're still only saved by the grace and mercy of God. Amen? Amen. Oh, we need these words today. And hope can only be found in Christ. The very purpose of our existence as a church is so that others might see and be reminded that there is this hope that they can look to and find in Him. This pattern that we see in Christ is that in the hardest part of opposition, right in the heat, in the middle of opposition, Christ is continually showing this kind of grace and hope and love to a world that is hostile against him. And even though this is happening right now in this text within the nation of Israel, this is a picture of the world's attitude toward God. And move on to our second point now. Not only was the, the suffering servant king suffering partly because of this opposition, but not only was he doing all that he did for the set purpose of fulfilling what was spoken, which again doesn't just point to Isaiah, because Isaiah was God's prophet. So, so not only was he seeking to do all he did to fulfill what God said through Isaiah, but secondly we see that he is gathering and guarding his lost sheep. You notice in verses 22 through 32, it says that a demon-possessed man was brought to him who was mute. He was blind, he couldn't see, and he was mute. He couldn't speak. And Jesus casts out this demon. And the response of the, the majority of the crowd is, well, Listen, maybe this is the, the son of David. Maybe this is the long foretold Messiah. And immediately, as soon as the Pharisees hear them saying that, they quickly say, no, no. Remember, we keep telling you that's not who he is. In fact, let me tell you, the Pharisees say, how he casts out demons. He is casting out demons by the prince of demons. That name there, not often used, but he's referring to Satan. Basically, he's saying the way that Jesus is doing this kind of spiritual ministry, even though 
the casting out of a demon, the, the freeing somebody from that bondage is good. He's doing it as a companion of Satan himself. That's about the worst accusation that you can make toward God. Toward, first of all, God in the flesh. Obviously, most people didn't see that at this time, but towards one who they had claimed to some degree had been sent by God. But now, as people are believing in him more from the Jews, and as they're being corrected by Christ over and over, the hostility is rising, and they say, no, he's working with Satan. They're trying their best to turn people's eyes away from him. And this shows us something very important. There are, as I, as I mentioned before, there are two kingdoms in this world. And they don't exist on geographical grounds. When you think about spiritual warfare, when you think about the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, I know there's different ideas on this, but I don't see any biblical reason for us to think that if you catch a plane to a different country, you'll find more spiritual light or spiritual darkness in that country. The way that spiritual warfare works is based on the truth of God's word. And these two kingdoms basically have some overlap. And you can find people who are in the kingdom of darkness right next to the word of God. The Pharisees, the teachers of the word, who had the most access at this time. In fact, the, the, the common people had no access to the word. They had to listen to what they were told. They were far less blessed than we are today. They couldn't have multiple translations and read through Bible apps like some of us hopefully are doing on a regular basis. You have to be in the word on a regular basis, brothers and sisters. We need to be a people of the word. Because Satan is at work. And this is what's happening. These people are being put in a position to deal with this question. Is Jesus working with Satan or with God? And this shows us that Satan can even work through the most religious people in our midst. That's a very, maybe scary thought. A sobering thought. This means we have to be a people of prayer and of the word. Amen. And we have, to, we have to be a people who, whether we can literally do it or not, at least metaphorically be on our knees, especially in these times with media and so forth. But there's two positions. And when this accusation is leveled against Jesus, he, he very cleverly says, let's use some basic logic. Would Satan work against himself? If Satan put this demon to work to basically possess this person, right? Because the, these were actually exorcisms. We've probably heard of, or hopefully not too many, but probably watched some of these creepy movies, you know, about people being possessed, and then some priest has to come in, and there's a fight, and hopefully the demon leaves the person. You know, nothing like that happened. When Jesus approached people to exorcise them, they cried out, we know who you are, the Holy One of God, the Righteous One. Have you come to deal with us before our time? And Jesus just said, get out. 
over and over. And again, he exercises this man. And then he says, let's think about this. Would Satan intentionally possess a person and then cast that demon out? He says, no, that, that's not logical. But he, did, he turns it over onto them. He says, but let's keep thinking about this now. How do you guys cast out demons? This is a statement that has an implication behind it, meaning by him saying that, he's suggesting that there were people using the name of Yahweh at this time amongst the Jewish leaders who were doing things like exorcisms. And again, this requires discernment because this reminds us that there are people in the name of Christ doing powerful, mighty works even in our day. But just because you say, Lord, Lord, doesn't mean it's the work of God in our midst. Jesus taught this in the Sermon on the Mount. Many will say on the last day, Lord, didn't I do mighty works in your name? And some of them will hear the words, depart from me. I never knew you. We have to be a people of the word and prayer and keep the gospel of Christ at the forefront of everything that we read, hear, watch, and are told is going on. Jesus turns it over and says, who do your people cast out demons by? And then he says this, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I'm casting out these demons, then guess what? The kingdom of God has come upon you. And this brings us to an important truth. When Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come upon you, he's talking about this major biblical theme that God has been building his kingdom throughout the ages. And finally, the king of God's kingdom is standing in their midst. And the people who should have been closest to God are rebelling against him, are rejecting him. Don't we see this in our families, in our friends, circles, in our communities too? I was, I was doing that for 21 years. Some of you might be doing that who are hearing this message. Maybe you're like the demons who know that there is a God and that Jesus Christ and His gospel are true. Or you've been brought up to understand these things, but you're rebelling. Please stay tuned. The kingdom of God is in their midst. And Jesus is saying, I am establishing the very kingdom of God, even though there's an element of not yet. So when you think about the kingdom of God, there's, there's two realities like, like train tracks that run side by side. Because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, it is right to say that the kingdom of God is here now. So there's an already. Those of us who are Christians, those of us who are believers, those of us who are born again, who are trusting in the person and the work of Christ alone for our salvation. Those of us who therefore, the same people are the ones who make up what is known as the church. The global, the universal church. Those who are in Christ. We are part of this kingdom already. But there's a not yet in the sense that 
when he returns, all the things that we're trying to stay true to and the, the fight that it takes to, to continue being faithful, to keeping the faith, all of that will be brought to an end and there will be a new heaven and a, a new earth where righteousness dwells and there will only be righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Our bodies and our souls will be glorified. So when he talks about the kingdom of God coming upon them, he's saying, this is happening. But look at what they're doing. They're not listening to him. They're not turning to him. They're not believing in him. And this shows us as well that not only is the kingdom of God already in our midst, but there's an almost combative war type of language here. Again, the Christian life, all of life, is a spiritual war. Sometimes we think of spiritual war by what we turn on to, to watch or listen to or what we don't turn on to watch or listen to or what we open up to read. or We think that we can control it. But we're all born into spiritual realities because we are physical and spiritual beings. And we exist either in the one kingdom of darkness that we're born into or the kingdom of light by grace that we need to be born again into. And it's only through Christ that this happens. And Jesus actually begins his ministry in Mark chapter 1 verse 15. He has these words. He comes out of the wilderness from being tempted. And he says, the kingdom of God is, is at hand, is here. You know, the time is now. Repent and believe the gospel. And so he's, he's preaching this kingdom of God and this gospel so that we'll understand these realities. And in the midst of this opposition, while he is not being combative himself, he is revealing for us that this war is very serious. Look at verse 31 again. He says this, Therefore I tell you, or sorry, not, not verse 31. Yeah, verse 31. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Oh, sorry. That's not verse 30. I meant to, I meant to say verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. And so he, he shows us that there's this reality of these two kingdoms and that there's no third position. There's no, there's no neutral. There's no in-between. And these are the kind of truths that, that have to cause us to, ask, to answer an important question. What kingdom am I sitting in? Or standing, if you're listening to this, or driving. What kingdom is your spiritual passport? stamped with if you took your last breath right now if your heart stopped beating what kingdom would you spend eternity in would you spend eternity under the justice and the wrath of God which we all deserve or have you put your faith in this glorious Son of God who came to deal with your sin. And on that old rugged cross, 
cried out, it is finished. And paid the full penalty, drinking the cup of God's holy wrath against us. So that we would be eternally saved and freed from this penalty. And free to live a life that is not bound by the power of sin anymore. We can't be perfect, but we can have some victory over it. We can grow stronger by His grace. And to be one day free from the very presence of sin. What kingdom? This is the question. What kingdom am I in this morning? What kingdom? And there's only one door to enter the kingdom of God. It is through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no other, for He is the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Me. And we mustn't waste time saying, what about this person over here? No, Christ is either true or a liar. No one comes to the Father except through Him. That is why missions exist. That is why evangelism is upon us as our responsibility. No one can go to salvation eternally unless they have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we have to share it at work with our friends. And the evidence is here for us in these 12 chapters we've been covering. The outcome of standing for the truth of God even no, no matter how we do it, is going to be some divisions. We will lose some friendships. We will have some strife in some of our homes even. But it is all worth the cost if faithfulness to Christ leads to certain divisions, certain kinds of challenges in our life. Because that is what we're called to. That is the first commandment, is it not? Love God more than the person in the second commandment, right? The way you love your neighbor as yourself begins by you loving God first of all with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And even again, as Christians who cannot do that, we are accepted by God eternally because we are united by faith to the one who has done that in his living and in his dying. Amen. He loved God first of all. By showing what it looks like to love God in his obedience. Active obedience. And then what some theologians have divided into two parts. The active obedience and the passive obedience on the cross. Where he laid down his life. Like an innocent lamb to the slaughter. First, first of all he was loving God by doing these things. And meeting the requirements of the law. But then he was loving us. That's why some old hymns are saying things like, What boundless love, what fathomless grace. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Christ is teaching the Pharisees and those who are listening that there are these two kingdoms and you are not neutral. You are either with Christ or against Him. Did you see that? It's not you're with Him 
or you're halfway across an imaginary bridge or against it. My friend, we are either with Christ or against Christ. And that is from the word of God. But secondly, in verse 30, he says, whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, I was looking this word up in the Greek. I was, I was looking at this in different translations. And I was, I was what, what, what does he mean by gather? But again, he's speaking to Jewish people. They were, they were aware of this battle language, with me or against me. But the, the way he's using that word gather is more to do with farming. It's, it's, a, it's an agricultural term. You know, you, you sow and then you go and you, go, you gather, you reap. And this shows us that Christ is saying all who are with him, all of us who believe, we are to be those who are gathering. God, in his wisdom and might, has chosen to gather people to himself graciously. But how does he do that? Through us. Is that not amazing? You think, well, I don't know. Lord, you get like Moses. Lord, I can't speak that well. Well, you know, I, 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 God says, listen, who, who made your mouth? Who made your mind? Who's sovereignly, providentially putting you in your workplace, in your family, in the situation that you feel inadequate for? Take it a step further like the Apostle Paul does. Let's just deal with it and be over with it. We are inadequate. We are completely inadequate. But that is why God has put us in these positions of our lives to show us that the power and the wisdom comes from Him. So that at the end of the the day, if we share the gospel and someone says, wow, I became a believer because so-and-so shared the gospel, we quietly go home and say, praise God, because I'm inadequate, but God used me in this mission. How is your gathering going? We are either with Christ or against Him. And those who are with Him need to remain committed to this gathering. Amen? Amen. As one pastor said, says sometimes, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. <laughs> Thank God that He's patient. He is patient with us. And He can help us to grow in this gathering. It's not based on us. But He's all-sufficient. These things show us that we need to be discerning about counterfeit ministry. Even sometimes people who are holding the Bible and saying certain things. And then he makes this statement about the unforgivable sin. Now maybe you've thought about this, you've heard this brought up, you've heard people talk about it. What's the unforgivable sin? Well, it's this thing, if you curse God with swear words. No, it's not that, it's, it's this, if you commit suicide. Well, no, it's not that, it's this, it's this. And there's this long-standing discussion. Let me throw my tiny hat in the ring and try a little bit to help and hopefully not further confuse this discussion, which has been around far longer than any of us have been alive. Started here, at the very least, probably before, but listen to what Jesus says. Verse 31 and 32. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy 
will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. That is a very serious statement, either in this age or the age to come. Now, I'm just going to pull the Apostle Paul in for this one. The Apostle Paul was blaspheming the name of Christ. See what Christ says there? Even people who speak against me in my name, right, will not be, will be forgiven, but not those who speak against the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul spent his majority of his, well, at least early adult life, persecuting followers of Christ. Doing what the Pharisees are doing now. He was one of the chief Pharisees and he, he led these missions where people would find Christians, stone them to death. We have one recorded in Acts at least. And he would take the robes of these people who had been stoned to death and think he was doing God's work. Right? So he, would, he was a murderer. He was guilty of murder. He was guilty of blaspheming the name of Christ. But in 1 Timothy, when he's talking about the grace of God, he says that God had mercy on him because, he says, I acted in ignorance and in unbelief. There's two things to keep in mind. At this point in history, we haven't entered the new covenant yet when Jesus states these words. So the work of the Holy Spirit was actually a work that took place when people like Christ would preach the gospel and then as the Holy Spirit worked through the truth of God's word, as the mind of people listening became enlightened and internally they started to say, you know what, this is true but decided to continue be, being resistant and would say things like these Pharisees did, that he's in league with Satan, don't follow him. This was, the statements like that are the fruit of a person who is blaspheming the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Now, based on that, and the fact that now the Holy Spirit has completed all of the scriptures so that we have the fullness of the word of God here in the new covenant and we have the Holy Spirit within us. I don't think there's one way necessarily that you blaspheme the spirit. But as simply as I can put it, it's when the spirit of God is revealing to the heart and the mind, something of the truth of God that any of us might be sharing with a person. And in the midst of the Spirit, affirming what's being said because everyone has a conscience. And as the Spirit is pushing this light a little bit into the conscience of the hearer, they choose to say, I, I hear what's being said. I don't think that it's false necessarily but I reject it as good. 
I reject it as even true. They might verbally say, no, it's a lie. It's basically calling God a liar. How does the Holy Spirit speak today? Through the Word of God. Through the Word of God. So, I think there are things being done today in mass amounts, in, in mass movements that probably fit into this category. Maybe some of you have seen this. It's not new, but it just came up again. The Church of England is now in this ridiculous debate about renaming the book of prayer so that when you pray prayers like Our Father who art in heaven, it should be renamed to say Our Parent or Our Mother. Because they fear acceptance with certain people in the name of love. And it's not a good love because it doesn't start with the love of God. They fear that people will not listen if God is not feminized. Let me ask you a question to think about. If God has revealed Himself throughout the ages, through His prophets, and finally in His Son, not His daughter, and ultimately in the fullness of His Word, given us a revelation that the one true God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when Christ spoke of the Spirit coming, He said, He will do this, and He will do that, not she. What right do we have for any reason, be it good or bad, to redefine the way we think about God? I think it's possible, worth considering, that serious Things like that that are happening in our midst might fit into this category. For the Spirit has revealed to us that the Father sent the Son to die for those who will receive Him as He has revealed Himself. And so to outright reject that could be something that fits into this sin. It is not one particular thing. But it is any way that you choose to reject the way that God has revealed Himself to us. And just like I said, there's two kingdoms, there's two positions. There's only one God. There's only one Christ. And you may not receive Him as you want. We may not receive Him as we want. And it is nothing short of blasphemy to say things like, our parent who art in heaven. And that is one of the most dangerous and ridiculous things that is an example. I won't go any further. But there are other movements like that. So you might be doing this politely. Maybe you're politely saying to yourself quietly. Maybe you hold conversations with people. If you're listening, think about if you're doing this. Well, you know, I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure. And it's not a big deal, is it? You know, if I think of God as my mother, it's a huge deal. Things like this are a huge deal. 
God has made us in his image, we should think of both genders as equal, but they're not the same. They can't be changed. There's only two. Right? And when we choose to fight against these kinds of truths or allow people to say things that are opposite to these truths, you have to understand something. You are pardoning blasphemous ideas. It may not necessarily be exactly this sin, but it's close to it. But all of this comes down to something that I want us to to close on as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper. Jesus says this very serious statement here. That if we commit this sin, and I, I know for sure that this sin includes a rejection of the gospel. If you live your life in unrepentance, rejecting the gospel, you will die and go to hell. You will receive the same penalty as people who commit this sin. If that's not the sin of blasphemy against the Spirit, I can tell you this. It is the same place that people go to who reject Christ. But in the middle of all this, he says, forgiven twice, three times actually. Forgiveness. In the midst of this spiritual battle, in the midst of everything that Jesus is saying, forgiveness is what he's concerned about. To be forgiven of our sin, as one of the Psalms says, how blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. There is nothing more important that we can know for certain in our souls is true than that we have been forgiven. And so many of us, like myself, will spend decades not being forgiven and building up sin upon sin, increasing our guilt, blaspheming in different ways against God, essentially. And God is patient. God is gracious and patient towards us. So if you're listening to this and you're, you're not yet a Christian, let today be the day that you understand something. We are all guilty before God, deserving of His justice. But God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son to place Him on that old rugged cross. You see, this, this suffering servant, the chosen servant of God from Isaiah, when you read chapter 53, you hear words like this, He was crushed for our iniquity. And by His stripes, we are healed. When God forgives you of your sin, He forgives us of our past, our present, and our future sins. So that we can sing blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And He gives us the gift of His blessed Holy Spirit to empower us to live as His children now, as this new covenant family, as these, these people who are now forgiven sinners in a kingdom of God's light, of God's forgiveness, of God's righteousness. So let us, as we prepare our hearts and minds 
for communion. Remember that. And if today is the day that you're hearing this gospel message, let today be the day that you turn to